0: This past week, my wife and uh, one of my daughters... Well, what happened was a couple of weeks ago, we rented uh, a couple of movies, uh, planning to watch them, and then for whatever reason, we didn't actually get to the movie, and my music stand just broke. So, I guess I will go the uh, short route. Uh, but they, they, we rented this movie, The Vow, and then we actually never saw it, and, and so Leanne decided, hey, before we return it, I, I would at least like to see it, and so... My wife never does this, but she like went down by herself, puts on this movie, and has her laptop out, and is working while watching a movie, and I was upstairs with the boys, so I didn't really see the the film with her, Uh, but she told me the plot line. It's about this couple that got married, and two months after their wedding, they were in a horrific car accident, and the bride, she lost all memory of the previous 18 months, which means she does not remember meeting her husband, dating him, getting engaged, and getting married because all of that had taken place in that time frame. So she remembered her parents. She remembered her sister. She remembered all this other stuff. She just didn't remember this basically two-year window. And so the story is all about the guy trying to win back the heart of the woman that he'd already won the heart of, right? Well, it turns out the movie was based on a true story. There is a book called The Vow written by Kim and Cricket Carpenter, And they got married in September of 1993. And like the movie, two months later in November, they were in a horrific car accident. That's the car right there. And they both survived, but Cricket went into a coma. And when she awoke from it months later, she could not remember approximately 18 months, which means she did not remember Kim, her husband, at all. In fact, she was scared of him. He was the stranger, and here he is saying, I'm your husband, and that petrified her, because she's like, I don't know you, and pretty soon she's saying, I don't want you in my life. I want you out. I, I hate you, and yet they are still married to this day. They wrote a book about it called The Vow. Someone in Hollywood obviously read this New York Times bestseller and decides to turn it into a movie. Now, Leanne did some research and found out that they took incredible license with the movie uh, compared to their story. But I think it was a New York Times bestseller, and I think the movie was a hit, because people were so impressed with Kim. The the fact that this husband, when he stood on a stage and still said, till death do us part, that he held to that, even when his own wife is saying, I don't know you, I don't like you, I don't want you, and yet he stuck with it, and won her heart back, and it just makes people go, ah... I think there's something about the pursuit. There's something in that. that To see this love and this devotion, to see the lengths which which someone would go to get that person. To say, I love you, you matter. But I think equally deep in us, or even maybe deeper, is a desire to be pursued. There's something in us that longs to have someone else go to incredible lengths to say, I love you and I'm a devoted person. To you. We see this in children. When you're kids, like you're saying, don't touch that, and they get this look in their eye and they go to touch it. They're testing the limits. They want to know will you still love me even when I disobey, even when I do wrong? How much do you love me? Will you go to great lengths to hold me close? I was a young adult pastor at a church in Cedar Rapids for a number of years. So I worked with a lot of singles and I had numerous conversations with these unmarried individuals who just longed to have someone give of themselves to go to any length possible to say, you are valuable, you matter to me, I love you, I'm devoted to you. And then when I sit down and do marriage counseling with couples, you still see that same desire. Like still want their spouse to indicate, to show evidence that you matter to me and I would go to any length possible to let you know how much you matter. Today, we are going to see God's pursuit. We are going to see God's love, and He's going to go to extreme lengths. However, as we study the book of Jonah, the lengths of which God goes to, on the surface, it's actually going to look like anger. It's going to look like punishment. And we're going to see some really kind of grievous things about sin. The message is going to start off kind of on this downer. It's not going to be nice and happy and peppy. But if we continue through it, if we go through this, we're actually going to see God's love. And we're going to see that God loves us so much, he will go to extreme lengths to do it. So are you ready? Let's hop in to Jonah. Uh, last week, when we kicked off the series, we only did the first three verses. Um, Jonah uh, excuse me, what we saw was Jonah's life was interrupted with a call from God. Jonah was this prophet for Israel, but God says, I want you to leave Israel, and I want you to go to Nineveh. It's about 500 miles away across the desert up to Assyria. But Jonah, rather than go and preach against the city for their evil, Jonah jumps on a ship and is headed across the Mediterranean, heading west, the absolute opposite direction. And what we saw was that When we have these interruptions in our life, whether they be interruptions that God intentionally brought to us or just things that God has allowed, sometimes we want to run. We don't like the interruption. But when we run to our Tarshish, because Tarshish, it seems safe. It seems like that's where we'll find peace. That's where we'll find joy. What we're saying is, God, you're not big enough to handle this interruption. I don't know if I can trust you. And so we don't want to go through the interruption. We then try to run to something else. And God is saying, that's not where I want you to be. I've got something better for you. And so that's what we're going to see today. The length at which God goes to communicate that love to Jonah, but by extension, his love for all of humankind, which includes you. And today we're going to see just what lengths God goes to to show his love to us. So we're going to start in verse 4. We're going to actually finish out the whole entire chapter today. But rather than take it in one big chunk, we're going to read a section, and we're going to take three different parts. And what we're going to see is Jonah's going to learn three things about sin and just how grievous his sin really is. And the first thing he's going to see is that our sin affects others. Our sin affects others. Starts in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Well, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. And so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God! Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. Last week, I told you that the whole story of Jonah points to Jesus. We saw how they were from sister villages. We also saw that Jesus in Matthew 12 referred to Jonah and used Jonah's story as like a foreshadowing, as a sign about what was going to happen with Jesus through the cross and the grave. And and as you go through this story here in chapter 1, Much of this recalls the story of Jesus being in a boat with his disciples and all of a sudden a storm comes up and Jesus is asleep. You're going to see very similar things in here. So I want you to keep reminding yourself that Jonah's story continues to point to Jesus. But one of the things we've got to see here first is that there's a storm going on because of Jonah. Jonah has received a direct invitation from God to go to Nineveh and he's going the opposite way. That is disobedience. That is sin. But so often when we sin, we often think it affects just ourselves. We're only thinking about ourselves in that moment. We are being incredibly selfish, and that's what Jonah's doing. He's being incredibly selfish. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh, so he starts heading for Tarshish. But in the process of his sin, it begins to affect those around him. The ship's getting battered, the sailors are afraid, and these are probably sailors who've been you know on the seas for who knows how many years, and yet they can tell something's up with this storm. They are petrified. They're starting to cry out to their own God, and they can't believe it when they find Jonah underneath asleep, saying, Hey, would you at least pray to your God? Because maybe your God can stop this. They're scared. But they're scared because of Jonah's sin. Our sin affects others. When you run to your TV as your Tarshish, thinking that in the glow of it, it will help you escape the interruption, and you then stay up until seven o'clock in the morning watching who knows what, now you're sleep-deprived, and you head off to work, and it's going to affect the way you work with your coworkers. It's going to affect your productivity, which then affects your relationship with your boss. And then when you get home, it affects the way you interact with your family, because you're sleep-deprived. Or when you run to the liquor cabinet, hoping to find a little bit of escape through alcohol. Because, you know, it just got to take the edge off. But the one becomes two, and the two becomes too many. And suddenly that alcohol takes over. And it affects the way you have your relationships with your neighbors and with your, your family. Or, or maybe when you go to one more sugary treat, just hoping that that food will bring just enough comfort, that this will be my Tarshish. But if you continue to overeat over years... It affects your health. And pretty soon, rather than your money being able to go and be a blessing to other people, it's going to have to be spent on doctor bills to take care of your own health, or you're going to have to expend all sorts of energy to try and get yourself back into shape. Our sin affects others. No matter how private we try to keep it, it does affect others. And Jonah's learning that the hard way. But not only does Jonah learn that our sin affects others, he also learns that our sin is a failed sin escape. Our sin is a failed escape. Verse 7. And they said to one another, this is the sailor saying to each other, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Big surprise. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, remember last week, we talked about how some of the people in in Jonah's day, they thought of gods as being just over one little area. So, you know, like this god would be over this region of land, and this god would be over this region of land, and when the two armies would fight, it really was about which god was stronger than the other. And so for Jonah to get on and say, well, I'm fleeing from my god, okay, no big deal, because they would think, well, your god's probably over this region, so you're getting on the ship, you're getting away from that god, okay. But then when they find out, Oh, you follow the God of the Hebrews, the God who created the heavens and the earth, who created the dry land and the sea, which means that your God is even over the waters. What have you done? You can't escape a God like that. When we run in our sin to to this Tarshish, we are acting as if God is this small God a God that can be escaped. We know theologically that, okay, God is everywhere. But sometimes we act a little bit like Jonah is. We act as if somehow maybe we can get away. Like, we, we, when we come to church, okay, yes, God is here, but he's not at the bar. Or, or you know, we go out in nature. Okay, God, God is out here, but he's not in my living room. And, and so we treat like God is more in other places than others, And so while we would never do that sin here, we would do it out with friends. Or or we wouldn't maybe do it out there, but we would do it at home. Sometimes we think that maybe God isn't everywhere. But yet King David confronts that lie in Psalm 139. He writes beautifully this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? (laughs) If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, meaning the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. David's saying, No matter where you go, God is there. You cannot escape from his presence. Your sin is a failed escape. You think you're going to get to joy. You think you're going to get to something great. But your sin is going to let you down. It's not going to give what it promises. It's going to fail. And you have now failed to escape. So Jonah's learning. You can't escape from God. Even right out there in the middle of the Mediterranean, God is there. Which means that when you run to the bar, God is there. When you're sitting at home watching whatever you're watching on TV or on your computer, he's right there. When, when you're at the buffet line and you go up one more time just hoping that this food is what's going to be comforting you, he's right there. You cannot escape from God. Your sin is a failed escape. So Jonah's learning so far that his sin affects others and that his sin is a failed escape. But now he learns one more thing. He learns that his, uh, sorry his sin requires sacrifice. Our sin requires sacrifice. This leads us to verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. and the sea ceased from its raging then the men feared the lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the lord and made vows a couple of comments before we look at how our sin requires sacrifice first i just want you to notice that just as jesus was asleep in the boat like jonah as soon as they threw jonah into the waters it stopped In Christ's story, he didn't have to be thrown into the waters. He stood up and just spoke a word, and immediately the storm stopped. I want you to see that tie there. But second, here's Jonah, supposed to be going to Nineveh and to preach to people who do not fear God, and he's not going. Instead, he gets on a ship with a bunch of other guys who don't fear God. He's not preaching to them, and yet God still uses him to help them come to fear God and follow him. You know, he's not even trying to convert these guys, and yet through God's own actions, they come to believe in the one true God. It just stands out to me. But what we notice here is that Jonah finally realizes the lots have been cast. This is all because of me. My sin is affecting you. I guess the only way that we can stop this is for me to be sacrificed. He thinks this is going to cost him his life. He has disobeyed the one true holy God, And so he's got to be thrown out into the waters. And he knows this is going to be his death. Sailors can't do it. They don't want to do it. They seem to respect life. And and so they try one more time, and they can't do it. They can't make it to dry land. So finally they relent. like, okay, God, you clearly want this dude. Do not blame us for his death. And they chuck him overboard. And as soon as he hits the waters, the storm stops. And these guys are like, whoa, there is a God. Jonah knows that his sin requires sacrifice, and I think we inherently know that as well. Maybe you're familiar with the pattern that I have done way too many times in my life, when I have sinned, and and then I somehow feel like I need to make this up to God. And so I'll I'll make these promises, like I'm going to sacrifice a bunch of time by reading my Bible, or I'm going to pray a whole bunch. You know, I'll, I'll be sure to go to church all the time, God, Or or we're going to sacrifice money, you know. I'll I'll start giving to my church, or I'll I'll give more to, you know, help the poor. Or or we we sacrifice our energy, you know. We go and we we start volunteering at at church, or maybe go out in the community and do something. We got to sacrifice something. We got to make this up to God because we did wrong. So we've got to sacrifice to make it right. The the problem though is our sin cannot be covered by a little bit of community service, a a little more Bible, doing some religious homework maybe a financial fine. No, the penalty of sin is death. You see, sin is treason. When God created mankind, he put his image upon man so that man could love like God and live like God. There was this reflection. And so man and God was in this incredible relationship. And so because God's image is on man, man's allegiance was to be to God. However, when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they showed their allegiance was not to God, that their allegiance was to themselves. And thus they broke the relationship with God. They committed treason. And just as someone who would commit treason against a country must be punished, imagine you commit treason against a holy God, the only fitting punishment is death. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, they did die spiritually they immediately felt the relationship with God broken. God had been their life. He had been their sustainer. And suddenly, they were afraid of him. Rather than when God would come and walk in the garden among them and them running to go greet their God, their maker, they tried to hide. They died spiritually. But they also should have died physically. It should have been an immediate death. But instead, God does this. It's in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were suddenly aware of their nakedness. And it said that they tried to find plants and that to start covering themselves up. So where did God get this skin? Because if God had just taken human skin and put human skin on human skin, they wouldn't have been covered up. God killed animals. He allowed the sacrifice to be moved from them onto an animal. Blood was shed, and God used their skins, their fur, their hide, to cover up Adam and Eve. Their sin required sacrifice. But in the gospel, we know that just as our sin deserves death, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed. He was cut for us. And rather than his skin being put over us, his righteousness was put upon us. And we are clothed now in Christ's righteousness so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our shameful, sinful nakedness. He instead sees Jesus. And he sees Jesus' covering. And that is what allows us to come back into relationship with our God and begin this restoration process of his image within us so that we could go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. Sin requires sacrifice. Adam and Eve saw it. Jonah saw it. And we see it. It's just that we can see that God gave us mercy just as he allowed the sacrifice that must be paid by Adam and Eve to be transferred onto an animal. God allowed ours to be transferred onto Jesus. And Jesus took and paid it all. So we see that our sin affects others. Our sin is a failed escape, and that our sin requires sacrifice. So this is kind of heavy. It's not like, hey, I'm so glad I came to church today to learn about my sin. I'm just going to walk out of here with a smile beaming across my face. No, if we stopped right there, I don't, wouldn't blame you for walking out going, dang, man, sin's pretty serious. But you see, throughout this whole entire story is this brilliant, bright thought coming through. And that is God's love. Because when you look at it, you see the incredible lengths that God goes to. He uses the storm as a disciplining love for Jonah. But we also see he loves Jonah through a fish. That's in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish, to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Um, I we need to pause here because that verse right there causes a lot of people to go, eh, I don't think so. I, I've got a lot of friends. Uh, some would say they're Christians. Uh, some would say they're not, and they would look at the story of Jonah and go, mm, No. Like, they would lump it in with, like, Aesop's fables. You know, you got a story about a talking bird. Okay, it's a fictional story. And so this idea of a guy getting swallowed by a fish, fictional story. You know, we can still learn some things from it, but it's, it's just a moral story. It's, it didn't really happen. And so I think we need to talk about that for a moment. If you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus, I'll just, I'll concede. It sounds ludicrous. I wouldn't blame you one bit for doubting the truthfulness of the story, right? I get it. But before you just write off this whole thing because of Jonah and this large fish, you need to know that there is a bigger story, one that's even far more fetched that Christianity hangs on. So even if we could wash away this whole story of Jonah and the fish, there's something bigger that we have to deal with. And we're going to deal with that in just a moment. But before we get to that, I want to talk to anyone here who would say they're a Christian, but they they would kind of doubt this story as well. If you say that you are a follower of Jesus, or, or I should say it this way, if you say you're a Christian, then you would say you're a follower of Jesus, which means you would say you follow what Jesus taught, and you would want to follow what Jesus did. But if you're denying the miraculous, then you would probably also deny Jesus' death on a cross and resurrection from the grave. Maybe you would just lump that in as another good story. And you would say you're a Christian because you're American or because you're Iowan. You you grew up in a Christian home. You like some of the ideals that are in, in Christianity. And so you'd say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe all of that. But I want you to know that Jesus may have come and said a lot of great things. He may have lived an exemplary life But he said that the reason he came was not just to teach us about God, not just to show us how to live. It was to come and die our death. He said that he came to give his life and to give it for many. He was to give himself up like a ransom. It was his purpose. God taking on flesh, living a sinless life, but going and dying a sinner's death. That's what it's all about. And so if you deny the miraculous, you deny that part of Christianity. Which means you can't really follow Jesus then. You you would be a respecter of Jesus. You you would like much of what he taught. You would like uh, how he lived. But if you deny this, you deny the very reason Jesus came. And so I would encourage you, don't call yourself a Christian. At, At least be honest enough, say you respect him. But I would encourage you to investigate this, because it is an historical story. It really happened. Now, I realize some of you are probably saying, okay, Aaron, I'm a Jesus follower. I do believe that Jesus died on the cross. He he rose again from the dead. I I believe that, and I've put my life upon it. But that doesn't mean I have to buy into this crazy story of a guy being swallowed by a fish. I mean, come on. Well, I I want to respond to two things. First— Which one of these seems more plausible? A guy getting swallowed by a fish or a guy having his back ripped to shreds by a cat of nine tails having a crown of thorns jammed into his head and a robe put upon his back where the blood in his ripped up back would uh, adhere to it and dry. And then that's ripped off him, reopening the wounds. He he has to haul a heavy wooden beam up a hill. He has uh, nails, stakes driven through his wrist and through his feet. He's hung up where now he's suffocating and he's starving and he's bleeding to death. And then they jab a spear up in his side into his heart just to make sure he really is dead. And then they go and they put the body in a tomb, where a couple days later, he walks out healed and alive. Now you tell me which is more plausible. Because there are plenty of large sea creatures that could capably swallow a man whole. If you're going to say, Aaron, you can only choose one, I think I'd have to go with the fish. I think I'd have to say, I guess that's possible. I mean, there have been other stories of not just Jonah, but other people being swallowed by large sea creatures. So, I I guess I have to go with this one. If you can believe in the resurrection of Jesus, this far-fetched story, and see the miraculous there, don't you think it's possible that God would have created a fish large enough to swallow a man and keep him alive for three days? Yes. But also, if you claim to follow Jesus, as we saw last week in Matthew 12, Jesus talks about the story of Jonah as if it really happened. And so if you say you follow Jesus, then you've got to believe what Jesus believed. And Jesus believed in the story of Jonah. He talked about it as if it really happened. And he talked about it saying that was a foreshadowing of him. And so if you believe in Christ, I would encourage you, I would challenge you, you've got to believe in the story of Jonah. Why is it so important to believe there really was a fish that really swallowed a guy? Because the fish reveals the lengths at which God will go to show his love for you and us. God loves you. And so while the storm shows his disciplining love, the whale shows God's merciful love. That even when you think God is against you, he is still actually for you. He's just interrupting your life, trying to redirect you and get you to where he wants you to be because he has your best in mind and he knows your Tarshish is not there. He's got something better for you. So no matter how scared you are, trust him. Go with him. Just as the whale is God's evidence of his merciful love, for us, the cross is evidence of God's merciful love. We should have died our own death for our sin, but Jesus went and paid it for us. He paid it all. And so he took it. That is mercy. That's the lengths with which God would go to pursue us, to show his love, to show his devotion to us, his creation. But also, just as there is a storm that shows God's disciplining love for Jonah, sometimes the interruptions that come into your life reveal God's disciplining love for you. The author of the book of Hebrews says such. He begins to quote from Proverbs chapter 3. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So then after quoting Proverbs, the author begins to explain more of what that means. Verse 7, For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God loves you so much that he not only sent Jesus to a cross to show his merciful love, he will even allow interruptions, storms in your life to get you to where he wants. It's not fun, it's not easy, it even admits it's painful. But it's because God loves you. He wants you. He doesn't want you running to Tarshish because Tarsus promises all sorts of things that it can't deliver. God has something better for you. He has something different. And if that means he's got to discipline you, he's got to work, he's got to reroute you, he'll do it. Because he loves you. You see, God knows that your sin affects others. But it also affects you. He knows that your sin is a failed escape. He wants you to stop trying to escape from his love and his presence. And he knows Your sin requires sacrifice, but the cross stands before us to saying, I've taken it. I've paid it. You don't have to sacrifice anything else. Come to me. And so if you're here today and you've been running from God, I I just want to say first, if you're not feeling any sort of storm, you're not feeling any sort of interruption, based on what we just read there in Hebrews— you should actually fall to your knees, cry out to God and say, please discipline me. Because if I'm not being disciplined, it says I'm not a son. And if I don't have you, God, I've got nothing. So you should fall to your knees and cry out to him. But if you're here today and you've had some sort of storm going on in your life, there's been some sort of interruption, stop running. In fact, don't even wait for the sailors to throw you overboard. Dive. Yes, it's scary. There's a storm. There are waves. You don't know how you're going to make it. But just as God could provide a whale for Jonah at that spot in the Mediterranean, he can provide what you need to get you through this. Because he's a big God, and he can carry you through this interruption. God loves you. He wants to mold you and shape you into that image of Jesus because what this world needs is people who will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And that means they can't live for themselves. Sin is saying, come, it's great, it's wonderful. And it draws you within yourself. And God is saying, I got something better for you. I want to take you, reshape you, make you like Jesus so I can send you to go and be a blessing. to do that, sometimes God disciplines us. And so as we continue on in worship, I want you just to pray and talk to God. And if there's some disciplining going on, I just want you to submit to it and surrender it. Basically say, God, do with me what you want. Take me apart. Remake me. I just want to be like Jesus. Yeah, it's painful. Yes, it's scary to have to confess your sin. What if someone finds out? They're going to think less of me. Maybe my reputation will be ruined. Maybe I'll lose my job. Man, I tell you, given all that up so that you can have Jesus, so God can do something great in you, so he can then do something great through you, it's worth it. So don't be scared. Trust him. Surrender. Come underneath his discipline and let him do in you what he wants to do so he can then do what he wants to do through you. So Father, I just pray right now that you would help each of us no matter where we are at in our spiritual journey, to fall on our knees in our heart right now and to say, you are God, you are good, and do in me what you want. Please take me apart and remake my heart. I don't care what it costs. I just want to be like you. God, we don't want to say this so that we try and look good. We don't want to just say this in the moment we mean it. Do in us what you need to do so you can then do through us what you want to do. God, you loved Jonah. Jonah. He should have been killed for his sin. And yet, even though you brought the storm to discipline him, to stop him in his tracks, you, you then took him in this fish to begin to redirect him, to get him where he needed to be, so you could do something great through him. So God, right now, we just surrender to you. We just say, we're sorry for running. Lord, if this message has been an interruption to anyone, I just pray that they would say thank you for bringing your message to them through Jonah and that they would stop running to a Tarshish. They'd stop trying to escape and instead they'd surrender and come to you and let your grace, your love, your gospel just wash over them and they would see that they are new creation in Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here today that does not have a faith in you, they have not trusted you, they have not crossed that line yet, pray that today would be that day. They would see that you are God, you are good. And just like those sailors came to a place on that ship and they saw how powerful you were and they made vows to follow you as the one true God, that today these individuals would fall on their knees and say, you are the God and I now give my life to follow you because Jesus, you gave your life for my sin. I want to pray for the believer here, the person who would say they're a follower of Jesus. And yet when they're being honest, they've been following themselves, they've been following culture, they've been following their addiction, they've been following something else and they've just tried to sprinkle you into their life. And today you want them to stop sprinkling and to get absolutely immersed in your gospel, to let Jesus be their full identity. So God, as we sing right now, as as we worship, as we pray, would you deal with our heart issues? Would you do in us what you need to do? Because you love us. Even if you have to discipline us, so God, we right now, just lay down. We ask that you would do in us what you need to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.